I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of Rackend and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode was about GitOps. And instead of the normal Kubernetes-focused discussion, although we did talk about Kubernetes plenty, we talked about what it takes to implement, what the things that you need to consider in building a GitOps uh, architecture and then having people understand it and use it. Those are the real fundamental questions about having GitOps as a technology spread beyond the Kubernetes reconciler uh, and a bunch of tools that spark off uh, Docker clusters. And I think that this is really important because GitOps as a way of collaborating and communicating infrastructure is a really powerful concept. And I think you'll find that this discussion helps lead you down that thought process too. Enjoy it. This isn't that far off from a from an idea though, where you would be able to say, you know, get ops my phone configuration and then have that push through a CI process and then back to your phone. Hey Rob, you need to let um uh oh Beth needs to come in. Sorry, Beth. Yeah. I'm watching my very part of my screen. Um, but yeah, so the, the topic, the topic for today is GitOps, um, and we can start in a whole bunch of, of places, um, from there, Beth, Hey, did you have a thought on GitOps? Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, we got, we got a long way to go in the telco world on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we got to turn all our network engineers into uh, developers. Um, they're not very good at it. Uh, do, you, I bet. do you see needing like GitOps equaling you have to be a developer for it? I mean, I, I definitely see it as a self-service interface for people. Yeah, um, but somebody's got to write that self-service interface. Um. I, I can probably give a bit of my experience with, with that uh, in, in my journey in, in converting uh, dev teams towards uh, GitOps and also non-dev teams, like even, even network engineers. Um, the hardest part is setting up the tooling in the first place. Once you have the tooling in place, uh, GitOps can be boiled down to basically just declarative configuration management. So if if your engineers are comfortable managing their configuration with YAML files uh, or, 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 or JSON, because I mean, YAML is, the, is a subset of JSON. Um, then it is possible to adopt GitOps. The yeah, the, the 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 real the real challenge though is is yeah, it's it's getting the tooling out there in the first place and doing it in op in an opinionated way. 
And that this is something that I've discussed before, and that the more opinionated your implementation is, the easier it is for a novice to pick up on it because you give them less choices. You say, this is how you need to configure your thing and it will just work. Um, so, so yeah, and, and, and when, you, when you're configuring your, your tooling, you, you need to do sufficient requirement specification beforehand uh, to make sure that your opinion meets their use case. Yeah. Well, so uh, let me put that more into context. Um, you know, we have plenty of people in our teams who know how to write templates and are comfortable with using templates and automation scripts. <clears throat> um, and, but our operation, you know, the people in the knock, they don't do that stuff. Um, they're much more, you know, see see something red on the console and do something <laughs> um, and but there's a lot of behind the scenes automation you know when the when you see something red on the console the ticket's already been opened it's already been mm -hmm. you know a bunch of scripts have been run to see uh, where the fault is so there's there's a bunch of stuff that's there's there's been a bunch of automation that's that's been put in place over the years mm -hmm. um, yeah and I mean, you you can even configure it beyond the the YAML. You 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 can mm -hmm. you can have your tools in place to to automatically update the YAML for you. Yeah. But let's let's say if you're if you need right. to monitor your network devices with SNMP, as long as you have a CMDB or some, or some kind of ultimate source of truth as to what the network devices are, you can. Yeah, we do. We, have, the, a, we that, have a big database. Sort. Yeah. So you, you you can you can use events off of that to to trigger automatic updates to uh, your GitOps configuration. Uh, I mean, of course, on on the network side, like particularly when 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 you have more static devices or or, or so. Maybe maybe the question maybe GitOps is not necessarily the best solution for you. And, and that, that's also possible. Um, it, it actually depends on, on what you want to do and at what point. GitOps is great for empowering teams to manage their own versions of software. But if that's not your use case, then it might be questionable whether, whether you need it or not. Could, could we expand, and, and maybe this is total heresy, but expand definition of GitOps a little bit more than just like Git-driven configuration? Because I think there's a philosophical approach in GitOps that is much more powerful than just, I change Git to trigger a, an environment change. Oh, sure. Which, um, is, which is about, you know, event, uh, externally event-triggered operations or immutable, there's immutability, there's version versioning. Uh, you can do a lot of those without a webhook. Well, yeah. So, for me, there's there's two primary parts about GitOps. 
One is the, the configuration management part of it, which is the Git side of things, uh, where, where you have your, your desired configuration, your desired state in a declarative manner. You have a change history. You have super, supervision and verification for those changes, which just happens to be that Git is a really convenient tool for doing that, but it doesn't have to be Git. Right. Um, then the other side, the, the more upside of GitOps, and that is the continuous reconciliation loop. It, the, 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 the big thing between, the, the big difference between GitOps and more traditional CD tools like Jenkins or, or Spinnaker or whatever, is that you're no longer pushing out the configuration. You're, you're adopting a, a pull model similar to, to Puppet or, mm -hmm. or Ansible pull. Uh, and, and it's asynchronous. So the so what what that enables is a much larger scale of management because each of your environments can can just follow the, the your, your your git configuration changes and apply them as as soon as it sees them. It also gives you drift correction because, because of that reconciliation loop. So if something happens to, mm -hmm. to, to change your state from the desired state, whether it's an intended cha uh, change or an accidental change or, or, or something out of your control, the reconciliation loop will try it really hard to bring it back to your intended state. And that is something that was expensive to do years ago. And, and just now we, we're, we're at, the, at the point where we have sufficient, sufficient tooling, sufficient APIs, and to a degree sufficient computing power that we can do this constant checking and constant reconciliation. I'm glad you're breaking those things into two points because I, I I usually think of the 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 first point, the configuration management and you, you know get triggering a change as part of that. The reconciler pattern, I think, is powerful, but uh, there were things about Chef and Puppet and their reconciler patterns that were very um, difficult from an ops perspective. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they they required yeah. item potency. They um, they could be very expensive from an operational perspective. They could you know they could block. A lot of things, um, yeah. But but and it, it feels a little bit different, right? The the idea of having my operations environment look to the get look to get on a on a timer, it's a poll event, and say, hey, do I match what this is supposed to be? Um, get it inside of kubernetes i'm i'm a little bit more wary of it from a from from git 
like I can see pushing it. And maybe I'm overreacting, but this I can see like, oh, hey, something changed in Git. I'm pushing that change to another system. And now that system has this new configuration. Um, having that configuration, then I guess heartbeat back to Git and keep making sure that it hasn't hasn't changed. Does that is that coupling critical for this? Or maybe it's just a permissions direction. That makes sense. I'm I'm trying to separate these, or maybe not. Maybe I need to get over separate. Um, I'm not sure what you mean about the last part about getting it back to Git, because like your Git never sees your current state; it only sees your desired state. And right. in that sense, like it, it like it. It's it's still very similar to to how you would do it in, in Chef or Puppet, and, and and I think you you're right. Is that with Chef and Puppet it it became expensive because I think policy itself was expensive there. The difference with with GitOps, GitOps particularly in Kubernetes, is that it made I dependency cheap. It it's built into the platform. And, and as we talked about last time about mm. like complexity, this is one of the, the the things that Kubernetes does for you. It makes item potency very cheap. Is that cheap because of the containers? I mean, that's item, item potency. Partially. Saying item potency is cheap is strikes me as a definitely something we should dig into because. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's cheap because of the containers. It's cheap because okay. of the opinionated way in which resources are declared. Uh, it's cheap because of the Kubernetes API itself, and and it's fully declarative. So it hmm. is cheap because you don't have the legacy baggage of dealing with uh, a full blown OS. It's it's well, also well, cheap because it was designed with the intent of having item potency with all of these things as you start them. So it's built into the system as opposed to having to layer it over an existing legacy system. But that's, I mean, the, the magic of containers is that you can, you know, you're, they're immutable. And so item potency in an immutable system is cheap. Actually, maybe that, that, that to me is, a, is like, ah, okay, if I want cheap item potency, then use immutable artifacts because... That's that's in some ways that you know there's no there's no setup. It's like use this artifact. If you don't like it, switch it. <laughs> that, that, there's no item potency statement. It's it's a it's it's different. Um, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but when I think of like item potency in Chef or Puppet, it's like here's a you know ten thousand line configuration script that I have to run, and my expectation is that if I run it twice, that it doesn't change anything. Um, which is an incredibly hard statement. It's a Kubernetes thing. It's like, run this container. And if you need to move the container somewhere else, just run it somewhere else. There's no, I guess there are, it's configuration injection because uh, you have to bootstrap the containers and then test if they're alive. I don't, I don't mean to be diminishing it. I mean, the, to me, this is this is you know on the on the equivalent of an aha. It's like okay, item potency in a in a containerized system should be cheaper. Yes. 
Yeah, and and, and it is. It's why we, we it's why the world has started adopting containers. Um, yeah. And, and and not just containers. Like it, the the that trend has moved now moved in the other direction because you you now have idempotently packaged applications like Flatpak or Snap. Like it's an application with its full dependencies. Well, so one thing I struggle with containers. I mean, I like containers fundamentally, and and I think they're designed to be sort of even more um, efficient than VMs. Although I, I like to think that we've reinvented the uh, you know the process. Um, but um, what I find about containers, and maybe, and this is changing as they uh, uh, you know as they develop. Is they were they were originally developed, you know, for you know running web web farms, right? Web, web applications, and they're really good at web mm -hmm. applications. And then we started saying, oh, well, why don't we use them for other things? And uh, you know, as you well know, we've been struggling with getting containers to work for for telco applications and network applications because yeah. you know there was just whole gobs of gaps in the. In the in their capabilities, you know, having a container that has only one network interface does not do any good at all for anything that's involving a network. Well, I'd also like to point out something um, uh, in some ways, get back to some of what Beth said about the folks in the NOC are not going to be doing GitHubs. And I think what Beth is pointing out with these large systems, the folks that are overseeing, observing, doing the, the day end stuff, um, that essentially what in the old days you would call computer operators versus the folks who wrote the code is that the bigger the system gets, the more you need to go to no code, low code. And it's the folks who are writing all the automation underneath it that are doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. The folks at the NOC are just responding quickly and making a couple of decisions here and there that make mm -hmm. sure that everything's still going in the right direction to come back to your eventual consistency and, and your known state and whatnot. So, and those folks in the NOC would never understand Git ever. No. It would be extremely confusing. To. Yeah, right. I don't think they have to. Right, they don't have to. And that's why, uh, but that's also the NOC folks are doing no code, low code. So it's a, the next layer on that are creating all the automation that are the ones that have to understand the whole and make, essentially make the GitOps stuff work such that it is no code or low code for the knock so that the right operations get fired off and then Git does its stuff and comes back to the eventual consistency that's wanted. I, mean, I, I see it as, as a huge win for the knock because the biggest thing that messes up a knock is when a change gets pushed and nobody knew or somebody makes a out of sequence change on something. Big win for the knock until you get to an unknown unknown. Like Facebook did. Hmm. I mean, it, 
the, the, the strength of GitOps is, is only, only goes as far as the strength of the tools that you use to build your GitOps oh. solution. Um, and the and people, if the tool doesn't, the do, people doesn't, developing it too. <laughs> yeah. if, if, if if your solution does not fit the problem, then then it's not going to give you any benefits. I mean, GitOps has much better use cases than DLT or or, or blockchain. But again, sure. just 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 like like with those, like if. If you're using it as a solution in search, in search of a problem, you're going to have a bad time. I, it's interesting to me because we've been doing GitOps work um, outside of Kubernetes. So um, where you know, we're, we're taking immutable, it's immutable configuration and then using that to drive systems. And we're finding more acceptance of it. And Klaus, this is where it's, it's like with DLT, I have to, a dig to find a, find a find a you know something I'm not otherwise well served for for the GitOps pieces. The idea of you know here is the configuration I want to push, and if I change it in this one location, it travels or it's implemented for me is seems pretty straightforward from that perspective because you're not you're not then chasing down oh where do I have to remember to make this change. And if you have a distributed system, it's that's usually powerful. Yeah. Uh, usually, I, I find that if a company has decided or, or, or has agreed to, to become cloud native, which means yeah. adopting containers, ad- adopting declarative configuration, then GitOps feels very natural in, in, in those scenarios. If, however, mm-hmm. there are barriers to becoming cloud native, um, then there's also going to be barriers to adopting GitOps. Is, is part of that because you're used to a more dynamic infrastructure? Or... Yes. Yes. Uh, I, Personally, I, I feel like the, the biggest challenge is psychological. It is, mm-hmm. is letting go of the illusion of control. Yeah, I agree with you on that. That's that's a big that's a big issue. Um, and that and that's not just that's just not on that's not just on the operation side, that's on the customer side as well. And on management side. Yeah, on the management yeah. side. Like one of the biggest challenge to challenges to, to continuous delivery is managers wanting to supervise release cycles. Yeah, why like, should they? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's because they're afraid. They're terrified of pushing out a, a bad release. The mistakes, uh, the challenge of mistakes. That's yeah. right. But right. but the, the only way to 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 break down that psychological barrier is to demonstrate that that automation actually works. Like you, like <laughs> it, it, invariably, the, 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 <laughs> the best way to, to, to convince someone to adopt continuous delivery is to show them that it works. 
which which means that you have to have a rehearsal system in the in the middle of in the middle of this too. It's the you're you're making me think of something that our CTO was describing um, that, that that might be useful to walk through from a GitOps perspective because um, he he had set up the system that had like named te dev test and prod um, areas in the repo. He built it and it was looking pretty cool. And he was like, all right, but that is then gonna, it doesn't, that's not using the way Git thinks about things. It's it's logical, like, oh, here's the dev here's stuff, here's the test stuff, here's the prod, which to your point from a manager's perspective, is like, okay, I don't have to trust that prod is gonna work until I've you know seen it work over and over and over again in other places. So I, I don't have a risk that I'm making a change to production that I don't have confidence in. It, um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's the, the, the challenge is more about confidence in, in the automation part on, on the automation, and, and specifically the verification. Like, mm. it, it, if you deploy to a test environment and something works in a test environment, like, you, you, like if your QA team looks at the test environment and says, yes, it looks good, Go ahead and then the release manager says, yeah, this looks good. Go ahead and, and promote it. Right. That's fine, but it doesn't have automation. What, what the automation needs to do is ah. be an expert system to encode what the QA team is doing to set to to, to have <laughs> to give you the same confidence yeah. that as the QA team that to say, yes, this looks good. And at that point, the release manager can also be an automated process saying, all the tests passed, go ahead and put, put this in, in production. Uh, and, and that is where the psychological barriers, because people are, because people don't trust their own tests. And, yeah. and, and in real life scenarios, the best way to, to cross that barrier is to pick a non-critical system and implement end-to-end -end testing and automation and show that, that it has a high change rate because every test, it, like you, you update it often, every test passes, it, it goes, goes to production and there's no problems. Once you have that, people will, will automatically go, like look at it and, and look at their own systems where they're doing the, their automatic tests and, and, and ask, well, why aren't we, we doing this for this other system? I think the testing piece is really important from a, from a pipeline performance perspective. Um, and it's easy to overlook. It's not just that we're automating the process. It's that there's actually checks that make sure that you made the comment about this with Kubernetes, right? The, the the startup test is actually a key component of the system, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just start my containers; it's make sure my containers are healthy. Um, and I think the same is going to be true with any GitOps operation. <laughs> you 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 need to make sure that before somebody makes a change, it, it's not. This is we're saying GitOps, but it's not just Git. It's it's any event externally event triggered system. That's why I'm separating the reconciler loop out. Like if I have a change in a service now ticket that then starts something, 
that should be okay. But I would almost want to consider that get up. Um, the, 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 the one part where, 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 where remember what I was saying, like Kubernetes makes this cheap, like this item policy, is yeah. that Kubernetes does not replace deployments until, like assuming that your health check is there. It does not replace your deployments until your new deployment, until your new replica set is healthy. So that's how you should do it. I mean, that's how Telcos have been doing it for years, right? You set up a parallel system and then you do a cutover. Yeah. And you you can do, like, by by default, it's it's rolling release. Like, you you do a, you replace, you add one new container within within your workload, check that, that it works, then take one of the old containers and replace it with another one of the new ones until you're out of old containers. And that's exactly and, how the original uh, VMs got started. They were actually virtual machines, uh, real, real extra hardware in uh, a single computer box in IBM and Amdahl would let you run multiple systems and you would put the new stuff on a system that was not outwardly focused. And as soon as you were convinced that it was running well in parallel with the uh, existing system, you would cut over. So that's yeah. where VM got its start. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and what, what cloud native technologies and Kubernetes have done is, is make it very cheap in terms of effort to implement this. Like it, 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 if it takes all of effort to to do the test and and, and and do the switch over, then you don't gain much. But but by make making the, this process practically implicit, like you you update your deployment spec and Kubernetes does it for you. This is an incredibly complex process, but from the user perspective, it's simple. Great. But, and this can only be done again because Kubernetes is opinionated. Like it, well, if it tried to to match every single possible scenario, it would be impossible. But but the the Kubernetes engineers that they correctly decided say, okay, I want to support this use case first and foremost. Then the, the the made Kubernetes extensible enough that people can add their own operator or controller to, to meet other use cases. But they aimed to, to satisfy the 90, 90% of the, the use cases that, that work out of the box. It's, it's, it's also possible because of the network routing model. Yes. Right. That, that to me is, is one of the, the powerful things. And Cloud Foundry was doing this before. It was one of the things that made Cloud Foundry very interesting was that they had a traffic director that allowed you to do that type of, of migration. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you're, if you're yeah. using VMs, you, you would be using console for this. 
but because console service discovery is very, very similar to, to, to Kubernetes. This was actually one of the you, reasons but why, you'd why still I decided- have to write, you, you still have to, or a load balancer, right? This is what people would do, would, would use load balancers for in that. Yeah, in that with the load balancer, you, you, you have to continually check out the database uh, for changes and, and, and update it. What, what, what console added and, 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 and what is one of the foundations of service discovery is that the database is in memory and whether a, mm. an endpoint is healthy or not depends entirely on the console agent that's living as a sidecar on those endpoints. Right. I think the console tells you this service or the, the, this backend is healthy. It automatically gets added to the service and, and, and traffic gets round robin to it. You, you don't need to do anything. But does this sound like, like Kubernetes? But because it does. So so again, like it, it it's it, it's it's a conjunction of various tools and technologies that that made all of this inexpensive. Right. But are the are the Kubernetes mm. tools really robust enough? <laughs> robust um, enough for what? Well, for example, for multi-cloud and edge deployments. For example. Uh, Edge, I would Robust say might not no. be the right word there. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think I, Edge is still an, an immature scenario for Kubernetes. And yeah. that is largely because Kubernetes has a lot of overhead. Yeah. Uh, Which is ironic because Kubernetes was designed to be lightweight. I mean, it's lightweight at scale. <laughs> It, I mean, it, it, it's lightweight compared to running the same amount of VMs. Right. Yeah. Right, because a lot of edge, um, you know, the, hey, the, the telcos would love to have all those network functions running Kubernetes or, you know, as containers, because that would reduce the overhead at the edge, right? We're mm-hmm. busy running right, firewalls but- and VMs. But Kubernetes, but Kubernetes makes a elastic resource assumption in part of right, what it's building. Which Edge doesn't have. <laughs> which, which is diff, which is different. This is this to me is the interesting thing with GitOps, right? As as we're starting to spin up GitOps behaviors without Kubernetes, with without the inherent reconciler, is that if you're trying to do that type of pattern that Klaus is talking about with resources, then you you actually have to deal with the ability for that you know cluster or that resource set to have a rotation in it or you know or change in some way which which is not guaranteed in the opinionated architecture and so that that's why the reconcile pattern I, I hadn't thought of it as closely connected to GitOps is what you're describing part of what you're describing is I make a change into into Git or my my immutable source configuration source and I have a backend that's able to roll that change out and the backend's doing all the lift. Right. The GitOps stuff is is 
just a you know a, a golf clap. It's the mm-hmm. thing that can actually roll out that change. That's you know that's that's where the complexity is. Uh, and I, I think that the the big challenge is that on 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 the networking side, there's still big assumptions about the immutability of hardware. Like if you add a switch, you have a switch. It it stays a switch. Um, right. Kubernetes, on the other hand, assumes that resources fail and, and, and may not be there all the time. Um, if I were to, to make a guess, if, if something like Kubernetes were to become usable on the edge or on, 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 on network hardware, we would still we would first need to see a paradigm shift in those assumptions on the on on the network hardware itself to so in, instead mm-hmm. of instead of having to get switches with spurt with certain switch os versions with, with certain fabrics uh, and interconnects being uh, as in order to be able to stack them um being able to to do this on the software side as a commodity it, it, I can see it being possible, but first, the hardware needs to, or the hardware designers and the software designers need to start thinking in a cloud-native way about things being mm. ephemeral as opposed to persistent. Yeah, yeah. Or at, at least, or at least have abstractions that can can do that work for them. Yeah, because because the challenge with infrastructure, at least in the way we think about it, is that there are times when the infrastructure is persistent, and you have like a network, you you have to get traffic into the, in and out of the right port. There's, yeah. you know, you might be able to reconfigure the switch to change your your the port that you're using for certain traffic, but that's a that's a sequential op- operation, doable, but but harder. You know, you have you have to have something that that uh, does the math. But you also bring up a good point, which is something that a lot of people forget. You know, cloud was designed to be elastic, right? And there's a lot of workloads where elasticity is uh, a virtue. You know, web workloads and and you know broadly you know, content delivery types of workloads. Um, Network workloads are remarkably consistent. They are not particularly elastic. Um, And they don't have the same kind of, I mean, yes, we have Black Friday and we have that kind of stuff, but they, but that doesn't, an individual router is is not going to be like all of a sudden overwhelmed. And, and it's, a and B, it's very difficult to say, oh, this this network um, connection is overwhelmed, so let me just like instantly add additional <laughs> circuits. <laughs> and- but, right, but I, I could see this is, you know, in software, too, there's two layers with this. Software-defined networking might add an overlay into this that is more dynamic. And right. then the, 
configuration of the network itself as you know it, as things change around it that you do need a way to continually update what the network that network configuration is and then and then deploy the changes right i i would also be cautious about the reason why it's inelastic. I, I think a lot of the inelasticity on current large-scale networks is because of the topology. And, um. if, and if the topology were to change, if we let, let's say hypothetically that that five G allows us to do peer-to-peer -peer networking at a large scale. Right. At that point, we, we might get to a point where any single node might be overloaded with traffic because the traffic is now a lot more fickle as to where it will end up. So, um, potentially. Um, you know, well, I'll give you an example, actually, because I'm not sure that is actually true. Um, and the example I'll use is, um, you know, COVID, right? Everybody got sent home. And um, the traffic patterns changed radically very quickly. But the telcos actually didn't have a problem. Um, was We basically did some tweaking on the back end and you know, switched around, you know, where things were coming in because I mean, it was the same amount of traffic. It was just in a different pattern. It was more distributed than it had been before, right? So because there was a lot more traffic going out to individuals who were working from home and a lot less traffic going into, you know, centralized data points. But, you know, the traffic was still going into the cloud or going wherever into the data centers. So I would say it was more more distributed, but not, but not a higher volume, particularly. Um, and you know, the cloud provider and the telcos kept up. It wasn't a problem. Well, right, and, and and that's what why I put emphasis on topology because even though the traffic, the decline traffic was more distributed. Yeah, was the, the topology, topology was still the same. It like. The end point, the, like the other end of the traffic, was still the data center, still the the the, the SaaS yeah. uh, providers. Yeah, it, now, what what would be necessary for the SaaS platforms to be truly decentralized, like to leave their data center? So, wait, wait, SaaS platforms? Yeah, let 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 let. Let's say, <laughs> like, like, like right now, I'm working with the assumption that SaaS providers or cloud providers in general work out of data centers because that is the most convenient place to put their workload. Like they have the the the, the bandwidth there, the the they have the compute resources, that they have oh. the centralized access control. I think I think that's I think that's not the only reason. Yeah, I that's think I think the the, the 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 dependency. I, it's worth, I think it's worth asking what it would take to make it change. All right, because so, I think so, that I think that if you because so what what we've seen is that the 
the, the, the effort to build that environment and even more to maintain that environment is, is so, it's so fragile and so difficult that the, the reason why those are constrained there is not, is not because of the environment of the, the location. It's because of the build and maintenance that, that goes into that thing. And so if, and this is, I think this is a, the ultimate GitOps question. If, if you had a way, um, and I mean, this is what Bracken's trying to help customers do. So um, we, I, we think about this a lot. If you had a way to say, this process will recreate your environment 100% wherever you need it, then, then all of a sudden you have decoupled the need to have that set up in one place. Now there's still data and access and all that. Like, there's a lot to do. But if, if you could do that, then in the small scale, you can do a dev test production and then clone out your data center so that they all are on the same pattern and they're all repeatable. That's a GitOps pattern to me. If you could do that, then you could conceivably break these big monolithic SaaSes into software again and then let people recreate that environment um, in a more distributed way. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, and, and more importantly, the, there's been lots of inroads being made like in, in confidential computing, in, like in, mm -hmm. in verifying the trust mm. of the platform where you're running something. So if, you're, if you deploy a workload and you have a way to do the proper attestation of your, of your platform, of your hardware, yes. then that removes one of the barriers uh that that you have for saying i want to run this workload i don't care where the server is well a lot of that's interesting because you know that's this promise of of cloud but that's not the reality it's it's like, you know, hardware disaggregation is a, is a great, you know, has been touted as a great benefit of containers and VMs. At the end of the day, you don't have full hardware disaggregation and you never will. <laughs> Not, we don't have it yet. <laughs> uh, I, I'm more hopeful, perhaps, um, mostly because... Again, like I, I see a, a very strong trend towards verifiability. Uh, like mm -hmm. again, not, not just of verifiability of your desired state, but also verifiability of your desired environment. And, mm -hmm. and, and the, the verifiability of the desired environment, that's not part of GitOps. It, it's, it's part of confidential computing, but there are two sides of the same coin. Which they interestingly are. is our is our March twenty second discussion topic, by the way. <laughs> so these are building. Um, You're very I, clever, I think, Rob. Sorry. You're very clever about. We're very topical. I hey, it just it falls out because these are things we want to talk about, which is good. Um, and we are coming to the top of the hour. We are. We are. We are at the top of the hour. So, I, this is a really healthy discussion about GitOps because I I think that. 
we got past the, the the sparkle and the glitter of it and and talked about really practical uh things that it takes to get it done yeah one thing that we haven't even touched uh touched yet is uh release channels like being able to manage multiple versions of the same application that was that was actually the other place i was going to go with what my cto wanted to do um and i'll save that um i'm, I'm putting it in the notes for GitOps release channels um and how he he actually undid the work uh that i described earlier and wanted to switch it into tags and, and things like that so that there was a release a release pipeline. Um, but let's I'll, I'll save that as in a future topic. We're already scheduled out to the end of the month. So put it okay. at the top of the next. Talk Excellent. to you. Great. Thank you. This Talk is fun. See you soon. Mm -hmm. Cheers. Wow, the more I learn about GitOps, the more interested I become because I think it's not as simple as using Git to drive Kubernetes pods, which is how we talk about it a lot, but it is a different operational mindset, a more cloud native operational mindset, really just a more collaborative mindset where we're looking at infrastructure in a more managed way, um, less immut more immutable uh, more version control. And I, I hope that you will join us in future conversations about GitOps uh, and confidential computing and infrastructure pipelines and all of the things that are packaged around this. The way to do that is to just jump on a call with us and check out the schedule. It is at the 2030.cloud and I will see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.